Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness, where we will be sharing insights into the world of mental health and wellness as we explore traditional medicine and holistic healing options. It's time to have new conversations about mental health. Join Mara James, the founder and CEO of the Hugs for Life Healing Center, as she guides us along this journey. And now, let's talk wellness. Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness. I'm your host, Mara James, and I'm excited to introduce you to Dr. Brett Patterson, child psychologist, founder of drbrett.net, and a friend. Hey, Brett. Hello there. How are you? Good. How are you doing today? Doing great. Awesome. 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 You have been so profound to work with um, during 2020 and did a bunch of... um, uh, interviews with you and sharing information with our friends. And now we're moving into a podcast. So really excited to bring um, your wealth of knowledge to our friends out there. Well, thank you for having me. It's always an honor and, and I enjoy working with you. It's been a, you know, our, our happenstance meeting at a county um, coalition several years ago has really blossomed into a, a great friendship and partnership. And I really appreciate the opportunity every time it comes up. Oh, ditto. Thank you so much. And thank you for being on our advisory board. Um, so first of all, why did you, um, what took you down this avenue of study? Yeah. Um, I was in the eighth grade, believe it or not. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So I was one of those people that kind of tunnel visioned, I think, in terms of what I wanted to do. And there was a couple of things that came together for me. One is... Um, a really good friend of mine who I grew up with, his dad was a psychologist and um, they lived in separate cities, my friend and, and his dad. So when we would get a chance to hang out with him, I was always interested in what he did for a career and was just fascinated by it. And I was about sixth, seventh, eighth grade at that point. In eighth grade, I took a journalism class and research was a part of the study for my eighth grade class. And um, it really got into a lot of psychology-based research, and it was just fascinating to me. And so at that point, I decided I wanted to be in the field. I always thought I would be in sports psychology or, or business consulting psychology were the two areas. But um, I've learned over the years to, to um, have, have a vision, have goals, but be open to the journey and, and be open to where it leads you. And that's how I ended up here. So. And at what point did you realize that you wanted to work um particularly, I guess, with children and parents and families? So my original study in uh, graduate school was neuropsychology. It was developmental neuropsychology was kind of the specific area that I was working in. And it was across the full age range from um, kind of toddler through um, geriatrics. Wow. Uh, but I really enjoyed the work in the, in the hospital setting. And when it came to internship, um, I it was kind of a series of I think what felt like unfortunate events at that point where I was not finding the kind of place that I wanted to be settled into um, that opened the doors to other things where I was started doing um, a lot more direct um, prevention, earlier intervention work with, um, with kids. And it took me off the path of neuropsychology and more into the area of prevention, early intervention, behavioral support psychology um, with, with kids and with families. And it just so happened my advisor, it, at my, in my internship at University of Oklahoma, I ended up taking a position as the um, training director at Children's Hospital of Orange County and recruited me to come here. So my plan was 
one year in Orange County that I was headed back to Oregon where my family is. And now 20 years later, 19 years later, um, I'm still here and have established my practice and my family and everything in Orange County. So. With a wife, a two-year-old and a baby. Amazing. Yes. Wow. And so I've been teaching the, you know, the parenting piece since kind of, well, pretty intensely since 2002. And so after all these years of teaching parenting and behavior support, the, uh, you know, two years ago, this last June, it was time for me to, to, uh, Put all the all the stuff I've been talking about to use is where they say the rubber meets the road. And yeah, it's been interesting. And what I love about that is, so I worked. Uh, my husband and I worked with a therapist um, when our middle one was diagnosed with Asperger's and ADHD at the age mm-hmm. of six. And um, you know, any ch- children are not easy to parent, and especially <laughs> ones that have some challenges mm-hmm. and gifts and diagnoses. And I'm forever grateful because I've learned so many things. But what's so interesting is like studying something from the and teaching from the book versus practical experience to mm-hmm. me is night and day. And now that my son is 22 and it's been quite the journey, we won't get into that. And thank God he's doing well. But my daughter was pulled into that mix or mess. So my son was in second grade and my daughter was in kindergarten and she was undiagnosed um, anxiety. So now that she's 20 and talking about what we've done, uh, you know, back then with both of them, she's like, I hate Dr. Da 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 da. And so it's mm. interesting because um, I feel like what things that we've done might not have been the best thing for her. Mm. So I'll give you a perfect example. Um, our therapist had something called a drive away. And so he says, okay, Mara, the night before school, say to your kids, we're leaving at 7.30, be ready. Now, mind you, this is a five and seven-year-old approximately in kindergarten, which we thought was neurotypical, didn't know anything about her anxiety mm-hmm. um, and second grade um, Asperger's ADHD. And I'm like, what? and I'm like, what do you mean be ready? Like, how are they going to wake up? How are they going to breakfast? How are they going to eat? And, you know, on my neurose, New York Jewish mother neuroses. And so he guided me through it and, you know, what to tell the school and how to get there and blah, 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 and blah, and da, 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 da. And it's interesting because we had to, I had to do three driveaways hardest thing to do my husband had it easy he was at work mm-hmm. and you know trusting yourself and not trusting and being like okay like you know you're having that internal voice and you're fighting with yourself a mm-hmm. and then b that my daughter got dragged into it and i don't think it was the best thing for her because it was another time that he's like okay to stop her from coming out at night with my daughter who was probably six because she would come into her in our room and i'd wake up with her in our room mind you I loved waking up with her in my room, but I know I don't believe it was um, empowering. I think it was enabling her. And I listened to him and he's like, lock the door or shut her door so she can't get out. And I like to this day, I I don't know if it's real or she says it gave her anxiety and like she woke up and had to go to bed, whatever it was. So mm-hmm. I just give you so much information. I don't know <laughs> if you could shed light on anything that I shared with you before we go through my other questions. But- I, there's a lot to unpack with all that. I think that, you know, I think there's a few things that came to mind as you were talking about it. You know, the, what you called it, the drive-by, the drive, drive away. The, the um, drive away, I guess. Yeah. So we, we call that clinically, we call it the drop and go, you know, it's, you know, I can see where that would be 
difficult. And I think we would need to adjust that and adapt that, that strategy depending on the child and the family that we're working with. And the general concept behind that, and, and I'm thinking specifically with the years of social skills groups that we've done with um, three to five-year-old children, because that's, you know, that drop and go is something that we needed to use in that. And it was a, an opportunity for parents to um, leave their child in caring hands. And as their child starts to escalate to do their best to put some physical distance between them. Um, now it increases the anxiety, the stranger anxiety, the, the separation anxiety, and those are all pretty normal things. Where we had to always kind of manage that was that what's the message send when the parent comes back as the child escalates? Because potentially what that can do is reinforce the escalation of the behavior and then makes that potentially makes the tantruming type of behavior around the separation uh, worse because it's being reinforced by that. So, but it wasn't just a drop and go. I think when we were working with families, it was not just a, just come in and just leave them at the door and turn and walk away and ignore your child. It was always the preparation. It's always about the front loading. It's just a coming in saying, okay, you're going to be going to a social skills group, or you're going to be going into your class. You're going to have a lot of friends that you're going to make there. You're going to have a couple of teachers that you're going to be working with. And if you have anything you need to do or go potty or need need anything, then they're the people. So there was a lot of front loading that went into it to make sure that there was some reassurance. And then the big part of that reassurance is we are coming back. So we're going to be gone for a while, but we will be coming back. And then, and then as they come back, then there was that big reinforcement of, wow, you did a great job. You stayed in the class. Did you make any friends? And then the, the, our, our teachers in that class would do a lot of the reinforcement with them about how good they did in making friends. And so there's a lot of things that, that go into that drop and go or the drive away plan to, to help it be successful where it's not increasing anxiety unnecessarily because it's already going to be there by its very nature. Right. So let me just clarify. Sorry. So this wasn't me dropping them off at school. This was me leaving my house without them. Oh, yeah. I don't know. If, yeah. So it was like, I guess, a drive away where I'd be like, okay, I'm leaving at 730 and, you know, 725. Like, okay, it's 730. I'm leaving. Bye. Mm -hmm. And and waiting a few minutes out front. They didn't see me and then mm -hmm. coming back. And then the idea is that you know, they're going to, they're going to want to say like, where'd you go? And I say, you know, I told you I was living at seven 30 and, mm. you know, kind of like stretching it out a little where you, ideally you hope that they're like, okay, I'm ready to go to school now. And then I'm supposed to say like, no, I'm not ready to go yet. And then I get them there and they're late. And then the front office is part of it. And then they get to play into that mm. and giving them kind of that ownership. So that's a, are you familiar with that drive away? Not not really. I mean, it sounds like it's applying to the same principles of um, maybe not. It, for me, it's sort of striking the same. It seems to be striking the same chords, whether you're you're like if you're going to work and leaving your children at home or whether you're going on a date with your spouse and you're having a babysitter come over or whether you're taking them to school. It's kind of all the same thing of um, there's going to be some separation anxiety. There's going to potentially be some behaviors that are intended one, they're sort of a manifestation of their anxiety. And two, they can potentially be intended to draw you back in um, from leaving them or draw you back in so that you stay longer um, as, a, as a way to kind of manage that high stress or high anxiety situation. Right. What's interesting to me about the whole thing in hindsight is that I was leaving them at home alone at five and seven years old. 
Home alone? Yeah. So I would go outside. Now, they have no idea where I am, even Mm -hmm. if I'm two houses away. Mm -hmm. Um, But it was just funny because I did it three times. And the older one, he might, you know, the therapist was like, oh, wow. Like, I've never had someone do three and it didn't work. Mm-hmm. And then I started questioning his tactics. And with my first one, like who knew like the anxiety it was, you know, increasing. But yeah, so this one, I was leaving them. Again, they didn't know how far I was or not, but mm-hmm. I was just out front next door. But um, yeah. Not a strategy I would recommend. I think that if the, what was the goal? Let me ask that. What was the goal of doing that? Was it independence? Was yes. it? Okay. Independence. Okay. And more for the older one, but he felt like the younger one was fine without taking into account like her anxiety level, I guess. And, and I guess this, you know, just makes me always question like, well, how do you know? Like, so I don't know, do all do therapists have all different ideas and some are good and some aren't. I mean, to me, you have to take into account who the child is, mm-hmm. who the parents are, but mm-hmm. are all therapists taught the same techniques? I think Many therapists or most therapists are taught the same principles. I think that it's the way we apply those principles is where there can be some variations in techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, there's, you know, it's, there's a pretty broad range of then the, the technique, there's a broader range of principles too, but we try to have them all rooted in like the basics. So for me, I'm a, you know, behaviorist, a cognitive behaviorist. And so that is really strongly rooted in, you know, decades and decades of research. And if you look at just at, the behavioral component alone, it's all pretty much rooted in uh, applied behavior analysis. And so you're looking at, you know, the equation of behaviors, the antecedent behavior consequence that results or that leads to or satisfies some sort of motivation. So then the next time that antecedent or trigger rolls around, then they're likely to act in the same way, hoping for the same outcome to meet the same need. I mean, that's, that's behaviorism. That's a semester's worth of behaviorism and in, in like you know, 20 seconds. So yeah. that principle is very, is very sound. It's very, um, you know, it's really kind of the gold standard for behavioral psychology that everything primarily emanates from, but the strategies people use around that, those principles can, can vary greatly. And so, mm. and then there's just, you know, I think with every profession, there's sometimes people that don't necessarily need to be doing what they're doing. <laughs> oh, yeah. Oops, sorry about my dogs. Um, but I and I would love to interview you, you in a couple of years to see how your teachings and your parenting um, either align or not. That's all not. Yeah, that'd be really fun. Yeah. Um, so tell us about Dr. Brett.net. Um, so, you know, as I moved into the prevention early intervention uh, area of practice and, and my kind of professional expertise, it was really strongly rooted in education-based services first. Um, it's really around, you know, the teach a person a fish type of model. Um, the preventional intervention is catching these things early, supporting the, uh, the mental wellness of not just the children, but the families and the family system. And, the, and, and I feel like one of the best ways to do that is to provide a, an educational foundation for those families to help them understand sort of what to be looking for, early signs, early triggers, um, and then and then strategies for being able to manage those those pieces. Uh, and so as I've worked with a program, it's a Chalk UCI collaborative called uh, Quidar for Attention and Learning that's now known as Child Behavior Pathways. It was really about parent education and support and also teacher training and managing challenging behaviors in the classroom. Even though our focus and our identified clients are usually the children, the work that we're doing is with the parents 
and the adults and the caregivers because they drive they drive the change. And so in 2008, I believe, I, I started my private practice doing clinical work. Um, and I wanted to build my private practice based on that same model that was education first. And so um, I opened my practice called Progressive Interventions. Um, and I offered a parent education course as part of that for a lot of families who were coming in with behavioral issues. Um, then I would offer this class that I called the Behavior Compass Academy or Behavior Compass Workshop for Parents. Over time, this thing has evolved where the, be the course that I do for families and for teachers has become its own thing. And so I broke that off into what I now call the Behavior Compass Academy, uh, which you can find online at behaviorcompassacademy.com. And so the, the evolution of this was now I had my practice that was progressive interventions. It's the clinical work. It's the parent coaching. It's the therapy that I do with adolescents and adults. And then I have an education component that's primarily virtual and online. And so to bridge those together, I, um, I decided to kind of put everything under the, the brand of drbrett.net. So if anybody goes to drbrett.net, you will see that there's a, a link to my private practice, which is Progressive Interventions, my education-based services, which is Behavior Compass Academy, and then my blog um, that's through the drbrett.net. So that's, sorry, it's a long answer that kind of breaks down yeah. the how everything sort of plays out, but it, it gets a little confusing when people see that there's three different programs that, that generally are affiliated with my name and that's how they, that's how they come together, but it's all under the, the, the banner, the umbrella of drbrett.net. I love that. And um, do you see that the effect, um, some of the, you know, silver lining or silver linings with COVID have increased people's reach that you could help reach more people with Zoom and you know parenting mm -hmm. classes online, has mm -hmm. that had not not asking yet about the effect of COVID on the child, just mm -hmm. asking your reach with all of your knowledge and wisdom to um, access more parents in need. Yeah, you know, there's there's an element of I think what we've identified as kind of a creative destruction that's happened as part of COVID. I mean, it's really forced us to dismantle how we've provided services, how we've functioned, and not just in mental health, kind of, you know, professionally and personally and across the board. And so this was one of those things for years, I'd been talking about putting my, uh, my, my flagship parent education and teacher training program into a book. Um, and then I considered potentially doing it in video. But, you know, I, I have a tendency to kind of fall into what I call analysis paralysis. I, I, I spend a lot of time really looking and researching into how I'm going to do things. And when the, the, the shutdowns occurred with COVID, it, you had to, I had to step out of that, like a lot of people did, and figure out something more quickly. So it did open the opportunity for me to be able to film my course. Um, There's a lot of things that fell in the line really nicely for me. I had a really good friend who was uh, in the film industry, and she was already shooting some stuff and had a, had a set set up, and she invited me to come up for a day, and she had her camera crew and a sound guy and everything. So I was able to jump into that and get the entire series, which is about uh, part one, Parenting for Success is the name of the course. Parenting for Success part one is a little over two hours, um, edited down, and part two, which I'm about to release, um, hopefully um, by, what are we, by the end of November, will be about an hour and 15 uh, edited down. So it was a full day of shooting to be able to get the courses. And then I spent the last year editing and putting some animations and things in there. Um, and I, I'm not sure I would have, I'm not sure I would have jumped 
to do that or been forced to do that had it not been for you know the circumstances and what that's done is it's really opened that course up not just to the people who are available to come do it right now um, you know i have people that are signing up and, and participating in that course from all over the country at this point so it's been a real um, a blessing for me um, obviously to be able to share this um, but hopefully um, also a useful resource for families as a self-study whenever they need it whenever they want it they can access it Absolutely. And I'm sorry, as we're working from home and the dogs start again, um, that and, and it's been not only a blessing to you, but a blessing to these parents. So that is wonderful. Um, we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to come back and we're going to talk about ch child anxiety and depression. And, you know, does it look the same in a child or a young child as it does in adults? So friends listening and watching, hold on one moment and we'll be right back. In these shifting and changing times, more and more lives are being impacted by mental health. The Extraordinary Lives Foundation, also known as ELF, is transforming the way people view and navigate mental health challenges. Their mission is to improve children's mental health and wellness and support families by providing educational tools, resources, and awareness events. ELF encourages families to recognize symptoms, overcome the stigma, and reach out for help. Through prevention, early intervention, and holistic treatment, we believe many of the big problems facing today's youth can be transformed within a generation. Extraordinary Lives Foundation is excited to offer the Hugs for Life Healing Center growing a worldwide network of approved holistic healers and bridging the gap between traditional and complementary healing options. Visit the Extraordinary Lives Foundation website at www.elfempowers.org to find out more about their resources and events. Together, we can change the conversation around mental health. Hope that you're enjoying today's Let's Talk Wellness podcast. And if you have a topic that you would like us to explore, we would love to hear from you. Simply email us at info at elfempowers.org. That's info at elfempowers.org. And now back to the show. Welcome to Let's Talk Wellness. I'm your host, Mara James, and we're back today with Dr. Brett Patterson, child psychologist, founder of Dr. Brett net and a dear friend of mine. Hi, Brett. Hello there. Okay, so our little children with big emotions. Mm -hmm. um, gosh, if I knew you and I knew this when my kids were younger, whoa, <laughs> how many headaches <laughs> we could and sleepless nights we could have saved. Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, I don't know about that. I think the, the headaches and the sleepless nights, no matter no matter who you are or how you parent are always going to be a part of it just because it is a natural part of parenting. You know what? I will tell you one thing I was blessed with because the universe knew I needed my sleep. My children were the best sleepers. So my child with oh, Asperger's and ADHD, 12 hours, like he'd Whoa. be in his room. And my daughter, who had seven weeks, started sleeping. So actually, I shouldn't say that. It was all the other like anxiety that I experienced and just, you know, my own stuff, you know, picking them up, up, you know. Yeah, that's all good. But anyway, so let's talk about child anxiety and depression and what it looks like in a child. And again, when you're talking child, you know, if you want to differ, like 
to you know different age range like of a young child versus a teen um and what those look like compared to what it looks like with um adults okay well it comes up quite a bit well it comes up quite a bit with a lot of families that i'm working with and as, as a behaviorist a lot of times what happens is they're coming in with behavioral complaints and you know whether i'm working with a family of a, a four-year-old or a seven-year-old uh, one of the things that we always want to look at and rule out is the possibility of some other underlying you know mental health kind of issue like anxiety or depression anxiety is really quite common to some extent with most children but but it presents itself in very different ways a lot of times than it does with adults depression does too depression is not quite as common as we see with anxiety with young children just because you know, you have things that are normal parts of development that are anxiety based. So, you know, separation anxiety is a normal thing. Stranger danger is kind of a form of anxiety. They're healthy forms of anxiety because it allows us to establish boundaries and, you know, it's, they're all part of our adaptive development. Um, so it's important. Whereas depression is a little bit more of a symptomatic reaction to certain things that might be happening, what we call adverse childhood events. Kind of thing. Um, but where it gets a little confusing sometimes, specifically, let me take a step back and look primarily like depression, for example. Um, when we think of depression, we think of kind of the more adolescent adult melancholy, um, loss of interest in activities, um, changes in sleep, changes in, in diet, um, those kinds of things. And some of those we actually will see in young children as well. But if a four-year-old or a five-year-old or a seven-year-old has a change in sleep, we're not necessarily looking at that as depression. We're going, ah, what is going on with them? They're not sleeping as well. Um, if they're not eating well, then parents get frustrated because they might think it's a behavioral issue because they're just, now it's a fight every day because they just aren't eating anymore. And now we think they're a picky eater. And sometimes that's the case, but as a mental health professional, we want to take a step back and look at those things and go, is there something else potentially going on here? Because... Like I said, even some of the same kinds of symptoms that you see, the symptoms that you see for depression can be the same. They're just going to look very differently or they're going to be perceived very differently um, with children. Does that make sense? Sorry, it was muted. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. And then what like in particular would you see, like when should a parent start becoming a little more, you know, consciously aware or mindful that there might be an issue, what's normal and what's like a little out, I hate the word not Nora, but you know, when should they start being concerned? Like there might be something going on versus just normal. Well, there's two things that I generally focus on. The first one, and I think is probably the most important and I tell every parent this is trust your instincts. If your instincts tell you something is not right, then for me, it doesn't make any difference if it is or it isn't. If your instincts are telling you it may not be, then, then seek help, get a second opinion, get, bring somebody else in who can then clarify that for you because what's the harm in doing so? Um, and and that, that will always be the advice that I give a family if they go, something just seems a little off and we don't know if we should do something or see somebody about this. And my answer is always, if your instincts are saying to do it, then do it and let somebody else give you an objective view in terms of clarification. And, 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 and that to me is also part of prevention early intervention, because if you start to sniff something out that may not be right with your child, the sooner you get 
um, some additional set of eyes on there and potentially the professional help if it's needed, um, the better the outcome. And the research is really clear in showing us that early interventions um, are pretty consistently the um, better prognosis for long-term outcomes. So getting and, them in. Sure, I love that. And where exactly would someone let, you know, like do they start with their pediatrician or like, you know, they, 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 and I love what you said, like really trusting that gut, like trust the gut, beautiful. So mm -hmm. yeah, where would somebody go when they're like, hmm, something's going on here? You know, we often recommend starting with the pediatrician. Um, one of the reasons that I find that that to be that to be one of the more valuable starting points is because as a mental health provider, we always, always, always want to rule out anything that might be going on medically. And so for a pediatrician to be able to hear what the concerns and the symptoms are, gives them a chance to, to rule those things out. And then they can really kind of be the, you know, the point of triage and, and, um, and directing them into what could be or should potentially should be the next stage of treatment. That doesn't mean you're always going to get that recommendation. So, you know, when you have the opportunity to, to share this with your pediatrician, and if, and if there's, if you don't get, how do I say this? I, I, if, if you don't feel like you're being directed to the thing that is going to be helpful for you, or you don't feel like you have your questions answered or your concerns addressed, then maybe going to say a, child psychologist, um, uh, you can do uh, pediatric uh, psychiatry. Um, it really kind of depends on what the, the problems are and that's gonna kind of triage you into the different areas. Um, there's a lot of uh, MFTs and masters, uh, yeah, LCSWs, licensed clinical social, not social workers, but mental health providers. Um, there's a, a range of people that you can go to if, you, if your concerns are behavioral or potentially mental health based. So let's talk about the S word, stigma. How many parents are, are ignoring their gut and just say, my child's fine, my child's fine, or they're misbehaving and not seek out help because you know that you know they feel like there's a stigma out there. Well, those are potentially two different things. And there's if you there's a Venn diagram where they overlap too. There's um, there's denial. Um, you know, there's the, uh, oh, I did the same thing when I was a kid. I'm, I'm fine. It's no big deal. We don't need to do anything about it. And then there's the, I'm afraid of having my child label, you know? And so those are, those are two different things, but there's also the overlap with those where maybe part of the denial is because there's some stigma and that's where you'll get the overlap in those. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, for the denial piece, you know, one of the things that we do with that is really just kind of taking a step back and saying, okay, are, maybe these are the things, maybe there's a lot of things that are familiar to you when you were a child. Maybe there's some of the behaviors that you exhibited or that you've heard your parents share that you exhibited when you were a child. Do you remember what that struggle was like? Do you remember where you had some particular challenges with that? If there was an opportunity for somebody to provide you some support or help, would that have been useful for you? What would that have looked like? What would have been helpful for you? What could have been helpful for you? And that starts to shift the mindset a little bit to, to having them be open to oh yeah, I struggled with these things and maybe my child doesn't need to struggle. Mm -hmm. And so it moves them. There's a model of behavior change that's um, we call the stages of change model. Um, and it's pre-contemplation. I don't have a problem. There's nothing going on here. Contemplation is, oh, there's something that's going on here and maybe I should do something about it. Preparation is, okay, there's something going on here and I'm going to start preparing to do something about it. Action is we're now doing something about it. And then maintenance is, We've initiated our plan and we're moving forward. And so when I talk about this approach with 
the, um, the, the, the father who is in denial or the mother who's in denial or the grandparent who's in denial. It, what I'm doing by approaching them from this way is saying, okay, if you had some of those similar challenges, what would have been helpful for you? The goal of that is not to move them directly into an action stage. It's to move them from pre-contemplation or there's not a problem here to, you know what, maybe there is, and maybe we can do something about it. And so that's, you know, really kind of what we try to do from that standpoint. So, so that's on the one side, on the stigma side, you know, it's sometimes that there's an overlap in terms of approach with that too, is, you know, we understand, especially with labels and titles and having that follow them into, you know, the neighborhood or into the classroom and, and that sort of thing. And that's a really understandable concern that a lot of parents will have is I don't want my child to be defined or identified by a label that's a diagnosis. And so they will not seek the support that they want or that would be helpful for their child. Um, it's not so much that they don't want it. It's just that they don't, they won't seek it, the help that will be most helpful for the child because they're afraid of what might come from that. And, you know, this, the overlap in the approach is really kind of talking about um, what's the advantage of not having the label? What's the advantage of having the label? What's the disadvantage of each one of those things? And if we start to really kind of put the things on the table in terms of what is available to them when they do seek the help, okay, is it more important to you that your child doesn't have the label or is it more important that your child has the help that they need to help them be successful? Is it more important for them to have somebody who's able to work with them, who's gonna help give them the life skills that they need to help them be who they are in the best possible way? And so we can manage the label piece, I think more easily than we can a child who's lacking services to help them develop the skills to overcome some of their challenges. And so again, from that pre-contemplation to contemplation to preparation and action, I, move, I wanna move parents through each one of those steps one by one to just kind of think about the advantages and disadvantages and what it is that they wanna do. I want them to guide this process too, because if I'm the one that's pushing something then I'm trying to get them to, um, to maybe act before they're ready to do so. So I really want them to own that, that process and, and the, um, the support and the help and the diagnosis and the treatments and that sort of thing. And, and, and I kind of going on with this, but I, one thing that I do highlight to a lot of families when we're talking about the stigma portion of it is that um, like if we're looking at something like um, autism spectrum disorders, um, we can kind of pretend, I think it's maybe a horrible word, but we can kind of pretend like, oh, it's okay, they're going to be just fine. Um, but what they might be missing without the diagnosis is access to a high level of services that they can get through like regional centers, through school districts. And so sometimes there is some value with I won't say the label, there's some value with the diagnosis. That's the diagnosis that opens up a lot of services for these kids who may need it the most. The label then carries the, sometimes the negative connotations. And again, we can work with those systems to really kind of counteract that, I think, more effectively than a child who's absent the services that they need. Yeah, I think that's profound. I mean, early intervention prevention is unbelievable. Mm -hmm. um, are you like, what are you seeing in the kids um, from as a result of COVID? Is it, are you seeing more fear and anxiety or what type of things? Um, yeah, it's kind of a, 
it's a little bit of a messy mix, I think. Um, tons of anxiety. I mean, it's really kind of the, what is sort of the mental health common cold, I think, for not just children, I think for a lot of people. I think as the world has started to open back up and people are getting back out, um, uh, you know, I'm seeing a lot of adults that are carrying this anxiety. And of course, that's bleeding down into their children. Um, and not even, you know, I do a lot of work in schools and it's the anxiety of teachers and that's bleeding down into the classroom too. Um, but then there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of kids that are bringing that in because, you know, it's just a different world where they're, everybody's in masks and, you know, everything is for the last year and a half, almost two years has been about physical distancing, social distancing, um, you know, not able to go play with their friends, not able to do things with their family and, you know, kind of under the, um, under the rubric of safety. And so as things are now opening back up and some of these things are loosening up, it's kind of confusing, I think, for a lot of kids. Of It's been unsafe to be around people or close to people for a good portion of time. Yeah. How is it now okay? You right. know, and sometimes there's not the explanation around that. And, and especially because I do a lot of my work with families and with children kind of in that younger age range. Think about, think about a six-year-old. We're about two years into this right now. So that is a third of their life has been under these COVID restrictions and hearing it on the news and hearing everybody talk about it all the time. You think about a third of your life. If you were, you know, if you were a 30 year old, that would be the equivalent of having spent 10 years under COVID restrictions in comparison. And what would that be like for somebody to have spent, you know, from the time they were 20 to 30 under that sort of a lifestyle. It's the same kind of comparison and it, and it becomes a part of who they are and how they function. And I think we have to start shifting them out of that a little bit, you know, I think cautiously, um, but I think mindfully in doing that and kind of helping them understand that, you know, there's, we just need to get back out there. <laughs> they get a lot of ways, Absolutely. you know, yeah. be safe, be smart, but but not when we're scaring the hell out of our children all the time. <laughs> Absolutely. And I cannot believe our time is almost up. I'm definitely going to have you back because I have some amazing questions you shared about kids being geared towards their immediate gratification and living in the tech world and not needing to wait and uh, pros mm -hmm. and cons regarding that. So we're going to put that on hold now so we can have a nice okay. juicy conversation in the new year. And um, Dr. Brett, what is the best way for people to get in touch with you? Um, probably the best way is to my landing page at drbrett.net. Again, that, that will um, pull up an opportunity for you to navigate through my services with progressive interventions, again, being my clinical um, private practice, uh, the Behavior Compass Academy, which has my Parenting for Success Part 1 and soon to be Part 2 uh, being available. Um, and then I'm going to be adding other content to that over the coming months and years. Uh, and then the blog, I also have been including, you know, quick tips. I've been uh, starting to do a two minute tips for parents and caregivers um, so they can find some of my resources on there. Beautiful. It has been such a pleasure, pleasure chatting with you today. I want you to know and everyone out there that you are amazing. <laughs> you are amazing. <laughs> Thank you for joining us for this episode of Let's Talk Wellness. 
This podcast has been brought to you by the Hugs for Life Healing Center, a division of the Extraordinary Lives Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. If you would like to listen to more conversations like this, we invite you to subscribe to our mailing list at www.elfempowers.org to be notified when our weekly episodes are published. Thank you for joining us, and we look forward to bringing you our next conversation on Let's Talk Wellness.